When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Hello. I'm Zainab Badawi. Welcome to Cadogan Hall here in London for this Intelligence Squared debate. And our motion is, the United Nations is terminally paralysed. The democratic world needs a forum of its own. And we've got a line-up of six marvellous panellists, all with a great deal of experience, who are going to be arguing for and against the motion. Now, before I introduce them, I should just let you know very quickly that we canvass you, the audience, as you were coming in to see where you stand now on this motion, the United Nations is terminally paralysed, and I'll let you know the results of that in due course. And then we're going to ask you to vote at the very end of the debate to see if anybody indeed has changed their mind. Okay, so these are the people who are going to be putting their arguments to you. We have Radek Sikorski, the Foreign Minister of Poland. Robert Kagan, he's an expert in US national and security policy. And the Labour MP and former Foreign Office Minister Dennis McShane. And lined up against the motion and therefore against them, we have Shashi Tarur, who served three decades in the United Nations. He was an Under Secretary General there. Sir Jeremy Greenstock was Britain's ambassador to the United Nations during the Iraq War. And Mark Malik Brown, who is the British Foreign Office Minister responsible for Africa, Asia, and the United Nations. Welcome to you all. Now, just in a moment, we are going to hear from our speakers. And, of course, after you've heard their opening arguments, audience, I'm going to throw the debate open to you so you can test the the views, the arguments of these panellists as you've heard them. And so our first speaker is Radek Sikorski. He is the Foreign Minister of Poland, also has served as its Defence Minister. Ladies and gentlemen, Radek Sikorski. When I first heard what the topic of the debate would be, I naturally asked the advice of our ambassador to the UN, what he thought of it, and what he thought of me speaking in favor of the motion. And he said, it's a very good motion, Minister, but if you're going to speak in favor of it, I should perhaps first submit my resignation. (laughs) So I should be particularly clear about my position. I support the second part of the motion. I believe that the UN is an indispensable part of the international order and many of its agencies perform sterling work. 
As a former refugee myself, I particularly salute the men and women of UNHCR who often risk their lives to better the condition of mankind. Moreover, I accept the argument that the United Nations is the world and it reflects the full variety of political systems that we have. However, I come from Poland, a country which was the first to fight Hitler and gave the world solidarity, which perhaps did the most to bring down the evil of communism. We are a country which cherishes the freedom that we have regained and we want to share the experience of transition from dictatorship and command economy to democracy and the free market. In a democracy, we take it for granted, but if you ever lived under a tyranny, you would know how precious it is. One thing is to establish a democratic order, and another is to maintain and support it. The case for the community of democracies is a response to the latter challenge. To the outside world, the community outside of the UN, the community of democracies should be a font of prestige, but it should also be a toolbox for democracy activists around the world. We are now hosting the uh, Secretariat of the Community of Democracies, and I believe that it's a, an organization that can give the UN a little bit of competition, a little bit of competition, has not done anybody any harm, and not as an alternative to the UN, but as a natural complement it, we should support the Community of Democracies. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Shashi Tarur. He is, he is against the motion. He spent 29 years at the United Nations, boy and man, really. He finished up as Undersecretary General under Kofi Annan, but he now uh, has turned his hand to writing books. And uh, we're going to hear the power of your argument now. So, ladies and gentlemen, Shashi Tarur. Ladies and gentlemen, the proposition that has been moved this evening has two parts. The first, that the United Nations is terminally paralysed. The second, that the democratic world needs a forum of its own. I'd like to tackle each of these in turn and oppose them both. Now, when I joined the United Nations back in 1978, if I had said to any of my seniors at that time that the United Nations I was joining would one day observe and even run elections in sovereign states, that it would conduct intrusive inspections for weapons of mass destruction in sovereign states, that it would impose comprehensive sanctions on the entire import-export trade of a sovereign state, that it would set up an international criminal tribunal, in fact, more than one, and coerce governments into handing over their own citizens to be tried under international law by foreigners. If I would have said any of those things, my seniors would have said to me, you don't understand the organization you're joining in my time at the United Nations, the UN has done every one of those things. And it's not only done those things during the three decades that I've served there, it's done more. It's administered entire territories. It's conducted multidimensional peacekeeping operations, including in situations in which war was raging around them. It's deployed human rights monitors to report on the behavior of sovereign governments. It's set up a democracy fund to help build democracies around the world. In other words... The United Nations has proven itself to be a highly adaptable institution that has evolved in response to changing times, far from being a case of paralysis. 
No, Madam Chairman, the only paralysis is in the minds of those who do not see the United Nations in action daily. They see perhaps a United Nations reduced to debates in the Security Council of the General Assembly, debates in which sometimes member states fail to agree. And to turn then to the second part of this proposition, that the democratic world needs a forum of its own. Well, it has one. It's called the United Nations. The UN is the forum where sovereign states can work out common strategies for tackling these global problems. And at the same time, the UN provides an instrument for putting those strategies into effect. If we were to create a new community of democracies separate from the UN, who exactly are we leaving out? China and Russia, for starters, a former superpower and a future one. Two countries without whom a world of peace and prosperity is unimaginable. Instead of encouraging their gradual democratization, wouldn't we be reinforcing a sense of rejection by the rest? Would the result not be the self-fulfilling prophecy of the emergence of a league of autocracies left out by this new community of democracies? As Dag Hammarskjöld said, acknowledging the imperfections of the UN, the UN was not created to take mankind to heaven, but rather to save humanity from hell. That's sometimes the best the UN can do, prevent the rest of us from tumbling into hell, but I think it's a downside better than any available alternative. Our next speaker for the motion, the United Nations is terminally paralysed, the democratic world needs a forum of its own. We have Robert Kagan, one of the foremost conservative thinkers in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Kagan. Uh, there are no UN bashers on this panel. And I too would like to see the UN function uh, as it was meant to function and hope that it someday will. The question is, if in some respects it can be admitted that it is paralyzed on some critical issues, uh, can we talk about another international organization uh, that would not replace the UN, because there is no replacing the UN, but an organization that could complement the UN, that could in fact at times help the UN to act on issues that we deem important, but which there is simply no way to avoid a deadlock at the Security Council. I don't know whether terminal paralysis is the right term to describe it. I'm sure we can see the fingers move now and then. But regardless of that, my question is, is the UN so weak that it cannot tolerate the existence of another new international organization? Is it in such perilous condition that it cannot tolerate the formation of an international organization designed to meet the demands and the new realities of the 21st century. Is democracy limited to the West? Of course not. Where is the forum where the countries of Europe and the United States and Canada meet as democracies with Brazil, with Japan, with India? Can there not be a forum that recognizes that in our 21st century, democracy is a global phenomenon that crosses cultural boundaries, that crosses religious boundaries, and that certainly crosses geographical boundaries. Can the UN, can my colleagues on this panel not tolerate the existence of such an institution? 
that can provide a greater sense of solidarity at a time when democracy is under threat. Let me spend my last minute answering a couple of the charges. The problem about Russia and China. Well, for one thing, I have to say, as anyone who supports the UN Security Council complaining about exclusivity, I find that rather odd, because there is no more exclusive body in the world, and quite arbitrarily so, than the five permanent veto-wielding members of the UN Security Council. But I will say this final point. The League of Democracies would not be exclusive, because Russia can be a member if it becomes a democracy, and China can be a member if it becomes a democracy. Our next speaker against the motion is Sir Jeremy Greenstock, one of Britain's most respected and well-known and most experienced uh, diplomats. He was Britain's ambassador to the United Nations and also served as the UK Special Envoy to Iraq. Sir Jeremy Greenstock. Ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's lovely to be able to lay the blame for a period of crisis uh, on the United Nations. Uh, perhaps I could add to this warm feeling of transferred responsibility by mentioning a whole host of issues where things are going wrong. Uh, the UN has inefficient processes, fails to appoint good enough people, is full of groups and members pushing their own selfish interests. We would never, of course, accuse the European Union of having such characteristics. <laughs> but terminally paralysed? This is the organisation that feeds nearly 100 million people a year through the World Food Programme, supports children through UNICEF in every member state of the United Nations, cares for over 30 million refugees through UNHCR, provides the structure for all your air and sea travel and all your international postal arrangements, is the repository for all international treaties, has brought dozens of countries out of the colonial era to a sustainable independence, the most recent being East Timor in 2001. The UN is the seat of international legitimacy and justice. If on a specific issue the UN is paralysed, it's because its members are paralysed. But the nub of this debate is the League of Democracies. To look for an alternative in a League of Democracies has a comforting ring about it. In the contentious world, let's have a club of people like us. But what does this achieve? Most of the things which worry us have to do with people who are not like us. Do we stop talking to them? Do we bomb them? And where do we draw the line on who is a democracy? Do we include the world's largest democracy, India? The Indians may have something to say about being on our side of the dividing line, or indeed on the other side of a dividing line. Do we include Palestine, where there was a fair election in January 2006, the result of which we rejected as inconvenient? 
The UN is our only global institution, and it is there to be built on. At the political level, it's a forum, a process, above all an opportunity, not a whipping boy or an escape route. A club of democracies is leading in the wrong direction for a world with real cross-cultural global problems. Thank you. Sir Jeremy Greenstock, thank you very much. And now speaking for the motion, we have the Labour MP, Dennis McShane, who was a Foreign Office Minister until 2005, one of the few British politicians who can speak French and German fluently, which came in handy because he was the Minister for Europe. Dennis McShane, welcome. President Obama, in his inauguration speech, told America, and I quote, our nation is at war against a far-reaching network of violence and hatred. And if you take Amtrak or the short plane flight from Washington to New York, you can enter the UN and listen to those who do preach hatred and do justify violence. Now, to speak against the UN is like speaking against the Catholic Church at the beginning of the 16th century. Like the cardinals of the Catholic Church, the defenders of the UN are thick uh, on the ground. Uh, and uh, it produces its own college of cardinals, their own Jesuits who fan out across the world to defend their church. We've had three of them tonight. A peer of the High Parliament of Britain who'll speak next, a knight of the realm, and, of course, a high functionary of the UN now retired. Well, these new cardinals and these new high priests of the UN are ready to tell you that their church and faith must not be questioned. I am here tonight in London to say that the UN, alas, may be the 21st century emperor far more naked than we realise it. So ignore the beguiling words, the fluency of UN speak. Instead, look at what we might try and do, try and do modestly, to say that democracy is important. What is democracy? People say, oh, it can't be defined. I mean, the, this country and that country shouldn't be involved in it. No, ladies and gentlemen, in the 21st century, let us hear more about democracy, more about rule of law, more about the rights of women, more about the rights of people to express their sexuality, more about the rights of law and order, and more about the right of freedom of expression. I am not against the UN. I'm not against ambassadors being there. I'm certainly not against its agencies. We're talking about that failure to provide peace, that failure to respect human rights, that failure to promote democracy. But I invite you tonight to send out a signal that, yes, we can build a different world order and the UN, alas, as constituted, as functioning, is a hindrance to the idea that, yes, we can promote democracy around the world. Thank you very much. Dennis McShane there for the motion. Well, he has certainly thrown down the gauntlet to our uh, last speaker, Mark Malik-Brown, Lord Malik-Brown, who was 
Deputy Secretary-General under Kofi Annan, so knows the UN very well. He's currently the Foreign Office Minister with Special Responsibility for Africa, Asia and the United Nations, and he attends British Cabinet. In the flyer for this debate, the UN is paralysed, we need something else, we need uh, an organisation of democracies, was a wonderful sort of language about, look what an awful job they've made in the Congo, 17,000 troops and there's fighting going on all around. Well, I thought that wasn't a bad place to start, actually, because... uh, In the Kivus, where we at the end of last year saw these terrible scenes of fighting between uh, different militias and the huge surge of refugees, uh, the UN did move most of its 17,000 troops that are in the Congo. But who are those 17,000 troops? They are troops from all over the world who've come together in a country the size of Western Europe. And they were sent there initially to observe uh, what was going on, report violations. And then the National Army of the Congo failed, so they were tasked to go ahead and try and stop fighting between different groups. And ultimately, they found themselves on four or five front lines across this complicated, failing state, trying to protect the results of the verdict of the people of the Congo, delivered in an extraordinary nationwide exercise in democracy, supported and carried out by the United Nations with the backing of Britain and other governments. But that really is the UN in action. Now that, it seems, is to be replaced by essentially the League of Democracies. Uh, This is the idea that somehow you can combine countries who are tied together by these shared democratic values, and this will override national interests. Well, just an interesting point. Uh, Shashi's own country, uh, India, South Africa, and Serbia, three democracies, voted last year against the human rights resolution at the UN condemning uh, Iran, while Fiji, a military dictatorship, voted with us for it. So this translation, this easy idea that democracy translates into the backing of human rights uh, in the UN is sadly not so straightforward because there are indeed national interests which, if you like, prevail. And in that sense, sometimes I think it is the opponents of the UN who engaged in a more misty-eyed romanticism about how the world they wish the world was And it's us, the UN fellow travellers, who are actually a bit more realistic about how the world is. We need a forum which brings everybody together. That doesn't mean that as democracies we shouldn't combine as a caucus around values to push for human rights and other objectives in the United Nations. But without that universal body, how on earth do we build a world built on the Churchill premise of George Orr is better than war war. Thank you. Thank you very much to all our speakers. So now we turn to the audience. But before I do that, I'm going to give you the results of that vote when you were all coming in. Very interesting result. The United Nations is terminally paralysed the democratic world needs a forum of its own. And incidentally, this uh, debate um, comes to you with the support of the Rosencrantz Foundation. Now, this is how you all voted. For the motion, 336. Against the motion, 251. The don't knows, the undecided, 
214. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So clearly the motion could swing either way. Now, audience, I hope you're thinking of your questions. I will lump them in, in, in twos or threes. Um, there's a lady there with the pink, the rather attractive pink scarf. So Jeremy Greenstock mentioned that most of the people who worry us are not like us. Um, I won't go on in the detail. Do we bomb them? What do we do with them? Well, I have to say that, yes, that is what is being done today. We are being bombed. So why is the UN so paralysed and why is it so ineffective and why isn't it timely? Thank you. And I suppose uppermost in your mind, madam, is the, um, the recent conflict we've had in Gaza between Hamas and Israel. Is that right? Yeah? Yes. One of the examples. OK. Another question, please. Um, OK. Um, those opposing the motion have argued that the case for a global forum, for this to work, I think the democratic states need to play their part too. And so my question is, does the panel think that, that the US under Barack Obama will support the UN more fully, and what effect will this have on unlocking the UN's ability? OK, thank you very much. OK, let's go to you first, uh, Sir Jeremy Greenstock. Well, clearly there were huge problems of uh, security and justice on either side of this argument. It's not going to be resolved this evening. But I want to put across a, a, a very simple rule of thumb. If people who are not like you... Uh, oppose you, are your enemies, if they have their own relative judgments to make, if they're capable of responding to an approach to talk, then talk to them. You can't talk to absolutists like al-Qaeda, but you can talk to almost everybody else. Before the bombing started on the 26th of December in Gaza, there were 
indirect negotiations going on which could have led to precisely the same answer that we'll get out of this mess now in Gaza, no further violence, open the borders, think about talks to peace. That was available without bombing. Talk to people before you bomb them. OK. Robert... Robert Kagan, with a new administration, Barack Obama, do you think he is going to work with the United Nations and therefore perhaps make it more forceful? Well, I don't know. Um, he said in a speech in April 2007 uh, what, uh, what the Clinton administration also did, which was that we, would try to work, we should try to work through the United Nations, uh, but there will be some times when we have to make our own decisions. And I think that, uh, for better or for worse, most countries hold that view and act on that view. I, and, and this is the thing that I, I find when I listen to advocates of the UN, they fall into a certain kind of trap, which makes their argument easier to win, which is when things fail, it is because the member states have failed. When things succeed, it's because the UN has succeeded. Uh. And, and I would just add, I mean, I really do applaud Bob Kagan for turning the argument on its head. Um, uh, you know, I think the UN staff, when in places like this, do heroic work like the Congo. Uh, the problem is where it comes to the intergovernmental uh, decision-making, where unless all countries are committed, uh, it's hard to get strong decisions. And therefore, we very much hope Barack Obama represents a new chapter of American engagement in the UN. But this is the, this is the theme here, is that if all the nations agreed to do something, we could do something. The problem is, and this is not just a temporary problem, it is a fundamental problem, which is all nations do not agree. And in fact, on many important issues, perhaps the most important issues, they're not going to agree. And that is why we talk about paralysis, because you are not going to get to that day anytime soon. And what do we do in the meantime? Well, is the League of Democracies going to suddenly agree more magically on all of these issues? No, but and no, one, no one would claim that the League of Democracies, all democracies will agree on everything, but they may they agree on a great deal. And, and would we not want to at least have that opportunity? If the UN didn't exist, would we see a different outcome in terms of the ability of a concert of democracies to act on Gaza, on Darfur, on Iran, the various examples you mentioned? Well, it's an interesting question. If you suggest that the UN... I'm going to stop talking in one second. If you suggest that the UN is the only font of legitimacy and you want to believe that, then the fact that the UN refuses to take action there does have a deteriorating, deleterious impact on the actions of other nations. But if you look at, for example, what has been happening in Sri Lanka, where is the UN there? If you look at the 70,000 people who, according to Human Rights Watch, have been killed in Kashmir, and I'm not allocating blame in this. Where is the UN on that? And on Gaza, what is interesting is, if you read the UN's Charter Article 2, all members shall refrain from the use of force against the territorial integrity or the political independence of any state. Where has that ever been applied to Israel? In 1948, two other UN members tried to snuff it out of existence, and earlier this year... Uh, and for some years recently, Hamas has been trying to bomb it and not recognise it, not recognise its independence or territorial integrity. So this is the problem. Where are all the UN members saying to Hamas loudly and clearly, orbi et orbi, to use a Catholic phrase, that you have to recognise the right of Israel to exist? It would be a nice start, wouldn't it? I want to... Um... Radic. Radix Sikorsi, you've been awfully quiet in these uh, opening questions. 
Well, because I think the community of democracies can't solve all the world's problems, but it can solve some. And, um, and just that on a point of fact, the community of democracies already works as a caucus in the UN. And my argument is that we should strengthen it, because I agree with the insight that, on the whole, democracies do not go to war with one another. It is harder for them. Democracies are, on the whole, more peaceful, because they have to respond to the needs of their people. They, um, democracies are uh, more averse to risk than dictatorships. And therefore, by strengthening democracy, we strengthen peace. And, and that's why the caucus of the community of democracies and the community outside the UN should be supported. Okay, thanks very much. Um, let's just get some more questions from the floor. A League of Democracies would divide the world into democratic sheep and undemocratic goats. Wouldn't that exacerbate global tensions rather than assuage them? Thank you. Another question. Uh, gentleman there in the spectacles, yeah. I think um, most people at the United Nations would say that more uh, effective cooperation between democracies would strengthen the organisation. And I would ask Mr Sikorsky whether he isn't really on the wrong side of the motion. Uh, he actually said that he was only debating uh, one half of it. Uh, it seems to me the crucial word in the motion is the word terminally. And I'm not sure that I've heard any of the three proponents of the motion actually argue that the UN is terminally paralysed. Most of them, I think probably rightly, think that a more effective cooperation between democracies would uh, at least reduce the paralysis and make the UN more effective. So I think they should withdraw and leave the field to the opponents. Thank you. <laughs> I'll come back to you. You've been found out, Radek Sikorsky. Um, you were trying to have it both ways, weren't you? So what do you say to that? Is the United Nations terminally paralysed? It depends which parts of it. Um, <laughs> but not, uh, not Radek, it's speech-writing parts, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the point is that the community of democracies was set up under the previous Democrat administration. Uh, and... Um, it has languished somewhat for the last eight years when democracy was introduced by more forceful means, sometimes from, from 30,000 feet in the air. Um, and so I just hope that the new administration, which is keener than, than the predecessors to use soft power, will, will see it as the useful tool. We do need to separate uh, uh, countries that uh, uh, still run concentration camps in the world today, that still kill their people with impunity, and we should shame them. That's the point, to make the difference felt. Okay. I'm just going to ask those, those who are for the motion that the United Nations is terminally paralysed, do you think that? Yeah. I think that there's no question that the UN Security Council is paralysed on uh, some of the most important issues that we face. Uh, and I don't see any way out of this paralysis uh, with the current configuration of powers. So I think that's probably the definition of terminal, but uh, I don't know that we have a death certificate. But we certainly have paralysis, and paralysis for as far as the eye can see on these major issues. Now, we have been working around this question of replacement or not, and I have never written that the UN should be replaced uh, simply uh, augmented and, enha and enhanced. And that's why when I hear the arguments from this other side, they are afraid 
of the community of democracies. Uh, otherwise, okay. they wouldn't argue so vigorously against it. Are you afraid of the community of democracies, Mark Manitbrown? Yeah, I'm afraid I probably should have declared an interest at the beginning. I was the principal funder of the community of democracies as, as, uh, as, as the administrator of UNDP, which the US came to and said, could you raise the international finance? And I did it happily because I believe profoundly that the key to successful development around the world is the democratic accountability of governments to their citizens, particularly their poorer citizens. All right, let's so, just stop. No, let Robert Kagan... So. He funded the community of democracies. Well, then he He's must be willing to concede on the motion as well. well no, well, <laughs> because that's, like, as, as the proposition here is that the UN is terminally sick and needs to be replaced. Our proposition is the UN is essential, it needs to be strengthened and reformed, and part of that strengthening and reform is indeed to have a vibrant, active caucus of democracies within it to drive the kind of values of human rights and shaming of authoritarian regimes that Radek speaks to. The question is whether it's done in one farmyard where goats and sheep can co-mingle and sort out their differences or whether it's done on two exclusive fields where all they do is whatever goats and sheep do we'll, to we'll, each other. When we'll, we'll, we'll come um, to the sheep. <laughs> We'll, we'll pick up on the sheep and goats in a moment, <laughs> I promise you. But, Sir Jeremy Greensort, you wanted to come in at this stage. Well, I think, I think Bob Kagan has, has precisely missed the point in saying that there are hard issues which the UN can't handle. This is an imperfect world. Of course there are hard issues which the UN can't handle. But if you look at the history of the UN since its inception, the more issues that have been solved by the UN getting closer to the hard part of the spectrum, the more we are able to use the UN for future hard issues. It's creeping up in the right direction, and we need to encourage it there to do the good that it's doing in the easier part of the spectrum in an increasingly hard part of the spectrum. That is happening. Do not abandon it while it's going in the right direction. Okay. Shalshi, very quickly, then Dennis McShane. A couple of quick points. Yes, indeed, of course, the UN is a mirror of the world. Radix said, you know, uh, the community of democracies can get some things right. Well, the UN is getting more than some things right. The things that can't be resolved by the UN because there are fundamental disagreements in the world are also things that a community of democracies cannot resolve. So mm. democracies are messy, they argue, they, they won't necessarily... The UN is precisely what these gentlemen want it to be, except they're trying to give it another name and subtract right. from it some of the bigger states in the world we need to work with. I just say we have an uh, object fact. I'm sorry. Uh, an object lesson in exactly what you just said cannot possibly happen, which was when the UN was deadlocked on the issue of whether Kosovo Albanians would be saved from ethnic cleansing, a community of democracies did act in that case when the UN Security Council was frozen. Okay. All right. But very quickly now, that question about the democratic sheep and undemocratic goats, or was it the other way around? But anyway, you know the point. Um, it will exacerbate divisions and tensions no. within the world community. Look, Mark and I are in the British Houses of Parliament. He is in a wholly unelected one, and I'm put there by the people. So this goat... And that old mutton lived very happily side by side. So, yeah. the, 
you can sort him out later, yeah, but clearly the sheep and goats yeah. get on just famously. OK, I want to take more questions. OK, yes, the young man there. Is the underlying problem here not the veto that sits in the UN? You're saying it's not representative. It is, because we send our ambassadors out and our foreign representatives out to sit in the UN. If our Houses of Parliament used a veto in every vote, we'd never get anything done. Is that not the problem? OK, so Jeremy Greenstock. I think the veto is a problem. I'd like to see uh, the veto addressed uh, as a problem that's blocking uh, more consensus in the Security Council. But remember that the UN would never have been formed unless the big countries with hundreds of millions of, of people uh, in, their, in their makeup uh, were able to sit at the same table with the smallest countries without fearing that they would just be brushed off the table by a vote. It's extremely difficult to form a global institution without that sort of protection. OK, that's all we have time for now on the questions and answers. Thank you very much, panel. Thank you for your questions. Now, your second vote, members of the audience. Um, if you already know, start voting. And let me remind you what you're voting for. The United Nations is terminally paralysed. The democratic world needs a forum of its own. I'm going to now ask our panellists to make their closing statements, their final opportunity to try to persuade you that their argument is right. We're going to start in reverse order, so it's Mark Mallet-Brown. Well, let me again say, brilliant job of muddling the issue from the other side of the table. Uh, the proposition is very clear. The word terminal means just that. It's over, it's dead, it can't recover. The proposition says the UN is terminally paralysed. It, it, it should be replaced by a group of democracies. I'm saying to you that indeed it is within the UN that we need to make these changes. Of course we need to make a stronger, better UN. But what I cannot accept is this idea that behind the velvet words of, 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 of the promoters of this proposition that the UN is terminally finished and should be replaced by a league of democracies. This is to divide the world. OK, thank you very much, Mark Mallet-Brown. You've just got... You've got a minute or two, gentlemen, to make your um, final statements. Dennis McShane, former British Minister for Europe. Had I believed what Mark has just said is the purport of this motion, then I would be with him. But I cannot but examine the UN and find it paralysed. Now, when you want to put terminal in front of it or part in front of it, I don't believe in euthanasia, but I think I see near death when uh, it's in front of me. And I do want a forum where democracies can meet. Nobody's mentioned Australia and New Zealand, South Korea. South Korea, only 25 years ago, not a democracy, and now a very vibrant one. I want us to come together, not to divide sheep and goats, but just to say not the world should have a bit of democracy. I think we need a lot more democracy. And I'm astonished that anybody who is elected could argue the opposite case. But nobody on my left, of course, has been elected. That's why they're arguing the case they are. Sir Jeremy Greenstock. There's a strange trend in human history uh, as the world globalises. Of course, we have our periods of war and intense division and, and polarisation. 
But in the periods of peace, uh, we get together again and form increasingly effective institutions. And the United Nations is the current experiment, and in the next period, it will be improved upon. But we're going in that global direction, and the experiment which for the United Nations has been up to now is a terrific experiment, and it's a successful experiment. And you can't jettison it just because it can't mend every problem. Build on it, and we will do better next time. Robert Kagan, your closing arguments. Let me just start by saying it doesn't really matter how many times Lord Malik Brown wants to introduce a word that does not exist in the resolution. It does not exist in the resolution. And the resolution is not about replacement. It is about paralysis and the democracies needing a place of their own in which to meet. And I haven't really heard a persuasive argument as to why that isn't true from the other side. The Security Council is the heart and soul of the UN. It's, of course there are institutions out there doing good work, but the Security Council is the heart and soul, and that Security Council is made up by nations that will not admit that countries like Brazil, that countries like India, that countries like Japan should have the same say that they have in ordering the world. And so, yes, we do need other institutions, and one of those can be an international community of democracies that also looks after democratic values in the world. The UN is not terminally paralyzed. It has shown itself, as I argued in my opening remarks, to be an extremely effective actor on a number of crucial issues around the world. The real problems the world is facing in the 21st century are problems that by definition transcend borders. We have global problems that call for global solutions. We can't afford to leave countries out in tackling them. We can hope that, of course, in the 21st century world, we all want to see with our information flows and instant communications that that international community will be an increasingly democratic one. But democracy has to come from within. It's rather like love. It can't be imposed from the outside. And what we need, therefore, is to create a world in which everyone can work together to dream the same dreams together. Subtracting today's democracies from that international community will have the opposite effect. And the final closing arguments for the motion, Radek Sikorsky. Well, let's not set our positions in stone. I've certainly... Um, uh, I've certainly uh, uh, learned from this debate. I, th I think we have explained our position much better. Um, and um, I concede that the UN does a lot of good work and that it is useful and it should stay and that there should be a place where everybody is present and we have the opportunity to talk to them. But I hope you concede that the community of democracies should be strengthened, both as a caucus within the UN and also as an, organiza on a, an organization outside that helps pro-democracy activists. And I hope the new Obama administration takes up where the Clinton administration um, left it.
So there you have the final statements from our six panellists, three for the motion and three against. Let me just remind you, first of all, how you, the audience, voted before you heard our panellists as you were coming into the hall. So the pre-debate results were, let me remind you, for 336, against 251, undecided, a massive 214. Listen, teams... This is the final result of this Intelligence Squared debate, the motion. The United Nations is terminally paralysed. The democratic world needs a forum of its own. For the motion, 240. Against the motion, 500. (laughs) Undecided work, 78. really. So, uh, panellists, thank you all very much indeed for your vigorous debating. And audience, thank you for your stimulating questions. Thank you to the Rosencrantz Foundation for their support. And of course, you at home for watching. If you want to find out more about Intelligence Squared or Intelligence Squared US, please do go to the website. The next Intelligence Squared debate here on BBC World News is in March. It will be filmed in New York. And the motion there is, major reductions in carbon emissions are not worth the money. Sounds like that's going to be very lively too. But for now, from me, Zane Abadari, and everybody here at Cadogan Horn in London, goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.